it was in Matthew chapter 16 that we find Jesus along with his disciples on a retreat. They've gone to the area around Caesarea Philippi and they've gone there for some rest and relaxation. And while they were there, Jesus asked them, he said, who do men say that I am? And they replied and said, some say thou art Elias or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, John the Baptist. He said, well, who do you say that I am? And it was Simon Peter, big, bold, impulsive, brash Simon, who answered him. And Simon said, thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Thou art, blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee, but I say unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of death shall not prevail against it. So there in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, we have the promise of Jesus Christ that He's going to build His church. A church that would belong to Him. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. And that's what I want us to talk about for the next several weeks. And what we're striving to do with this is we're not striving to Get somebody told off. And we're not striving to prove that this is what's right above anything else. But our overarching concept over the next several weeks is the theme of lessons entitled, The Misunderstood Church. And our heart's desire is to promote a deeper faith in your heart for the sake of your soul. One of the things we want to talk about are common misunderstandings about churches of Christ. Because to be sure, there's a lot of disinformation out there. A lot of misinformation out there. And a lot of just downright prejudice out there about churches of Christ. And it also seems that in our world, it becomes easier and easier and easier to be misunderstood and fall victim to people wanting to cancel you for whatever reason. And misunderstandings are a very common occurrence. You know, it's, it's kind of like the, the three elderly men that were all hard of hearing. They were out fishing together one day. And one of them says, my, it sure is windy today. And the second one said, I thought it was Thursday. And the third one said, me too, look in that cooler and let's get something to drink. Or it's like the situation or story I read about not long ago about a couple that wanted to get married. And they wanted to be married following the morning worship service. In fact, they wanted the entire congregation, their church family, to stay and witnessed their wedding vows that morning. And they discussed it with the preacher, and he was in agreement. And so on the appointed day, they had everything was set. 
And on that appointed Sunday at the close of the service, the preacher said, would everyone please be seated? And he said, I would like for those who have a desire to be married to please come forward. And I'll join you in the bonds of holy matrimony after you've said your vows. Thirteen women and three men came to the front of the building that morning. Now, admittedly, those types of misunderstandings are human or humorous. And those types of misunderstandings actually don't amount to anything. But when people come to misunderstand the church, the greatest institution on the footstool of God, the institution the Bible tells us Jesus purchased with His own blood, then it becomes a very serious matter. You see, history is red with the blood of those who've been horribly persecuted by those who did not understand. Sometimes people talk about Jesus as being the misunderstood Christ. And I believe that to be very true. Throughout His life and even in His death, Jesus was misunderstood. You recall the day that He died on the cross? Out of His terrible agony on the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? That's in Matthew 27, verse 46. It would seem that anyone would understand those very simple words. And yet, some around there said, Well, He's calling for Elijah. On another occasion, Jesus was misunderstood about the temple. He said, Destroy this temple and I'm going to build it back in three days. They thought it was blasphemy. It took years to build the temple. Jesus was talking about the resurrection of His body. He wasn't talking about the literal temple that existed in Jerusalem. But when we think about that, it should not surprise us that the church is misunderstood today. It was misunderstood in the days of the apostles. Acts 28 verse 22 tells us it was the sect everywhere spoken against. If they had not misunderstood it, they would not have referred to it as a sect. And just as they referred to it as a sect in the first century, it's only been just a few years ago that when Matthew Winkler's wife shot him, which caused every gospel preacher since then to sleep with one eye open, but Nancy Grace on her national television program referred to Churches of Christ as a cult. You see, there's misunderstandings there. People misunderstand the nature, the mission, and the destiny of the church. There are many in our day and time who misunderstand the church. And there are numerous misconceptions, and I've heard most of them in my lifetime, about churches of Christ. You see... For a lot of folks today, the main thing that matters in a church is, is it warm and welcoming? Does the service bring me pleasure? Is it emotionally uplifting? Is the church making an impact for good in the community? And if a church passes those three tests, then everything else as well as teaching is largely irrelevant. But beloved, I want to say this 
kindly and lovingly and emphatically. I believe that what is taught is important and it matters. If I believe what a church is teaching is right, then I want to move on to those other considerations like warmness and welcoming and uplifting and edifying and making an impact for good in the community. But if the teaching's not right and in harmony with the Bible, then other things are unimportant. Now all of that said, I do not presume this morning to speak for every member of every church of Christ on the footstool of God. I don't speak for every congregation that calls itself a church of Christ. I don't speak for every congregation in Shelby County that calls itself a church of Christ. I speak for myself. And I speak for the Center Church of Christ that meets at 110 Hurst Street in Center, Texas. And I want to emphasize this as much as I possibly can. Because we lose sight of the fact that we are not actually a denomination. Because there is no national headquarters on this earth. If you were to go on the internet today and do a Google search for national or international headquarters of churches of Christ, it would come back and say results not found. So therefore, no one, no one can represent the beliefs and practices of churches of Christ in any official way. Every congregation is autonomous and stands alone. And no congregation has jurisdiction or authority over any other congregation. To be quite honest, churches of Christ are different from other church groups. Stay with me. That does not mean that we think we're more zealous than other religious groups, because we're not. It does not mean that we think we are more passionate about serving God than others are. We don't believe either one of those things. Not one bit. When I say we're different, we do not consider ourselves to be more sincere, more devoted, or more dedicated in our desire to obey God than other people are. And it does not mean that we are more Christ-like in our thinking and actions than those in any other religious groups. We know none of those things are true. When we say we're different, we're talking about the difference of a radical idea. We are a product of what is referred to as the Restoration Movement. Most church-going folks today have heard of the Reformation, or the Protestant Reformation as it's referred to sometimes, or sometimes it's referred to as the Great Reformation. It swept through Europe in the 1500s. And I think that most all church people have heard of the man who's usually credited with starting that great reformation or Protestant reformation. 
He was a man by the name of Martin Luther. And the term Reformation is used to describe the movement that Luther created because the goal of men like Martin Luther was to reform the Catholic establishment of their day. Because Luther and others in the 1500s viewed the Catholic establishment as corrupt morally and doctrinally. And so because of this, Luther, along with others, Zwingli and some others, felt that it needed to be reformed. And the Reformation movement of the 1500s was a huge step in the right direction. But it fell just a bit short of its ultimate goal. And what we do in Churches of Christ is take that idea of Reformation a step further. We embrace the idea of restoration. And claim to be part of a restoration movement. Because our goal is actually to restore the church in our day and time to the way it was in the time of Christ. And it's a continuing process. Our goal is to restore the beliefs and practices of the church as found in the New Testament. From time to time you hear someone say that they're looking for a church home. And they say they're looking for a Bible-believing church. In other words, a church that believes the Bible is literally God's Word to man. A church that believes the Bible is the ultimate authority for life. Churches of Christ are Bible-believing churches. But most of us are not satisfied with just being Bible-believing churches. We're just as passionate about being churches that have restored the beliefs and practices of the church in New Testament times. Now, you, you might ask the question, why do we have this goal of restoration? Restoration is a concept foundational to the Word of God. God has always given His people instructions for life. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about Israel of old or the church of the New Testament. God has always instructed people how they are to be organized and how they're to be governed. He's instructed people how they are to approach Him. He has instructed people how they are to worship Him. He's told His people how they are to live morally and ethically. And it's also a well-established fact that God demands complete obedience. God does not tolerate men and women trifling with His Word. Remember the case of Saul and the Amalekites? Saul was sent down to utterly destroy the Amalekites. God said, don't you spare anything, but what did Saul do? He spared Agag the king and the best of the sheep and the oxen because he was going to sacrifice them at Gilgal. So Saul is coming back home from his mission to utterly destroy the Amalekites and he's dragging along 
Agag the king and the spoils of war that God told him not to do. And he looks up, and as he's walking back toward home, he looks up and he sees God's man Samuel coming toward him. And it's one of those uh uh-oh moments in the life of Saul. It's kind of like one of those moments that I always laugh about and then cry about when I round the corner in the grocery store and somebody runs into me with a 12-pack of beer in the buggy and they want to explain to me, well, preacher, it's not for me. Uh, My wife uses it on her hair. Saul's coming back and he's dragging along Agag and the sheep and the oxen. And he sees Samuel and he says, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And about that time the sheep start bleeding, the oxen start lowing, and Samuel says, What meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? Saul says, Oh, well, the people wanted to, to, to do that to uh, sacrifice to God. He doesn't repent. Samuel says, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offering as sac- and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? He says, Saul, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken in the fat of rams. That's all in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And there's the case of Ananias and Sapphira that we talked about in Bible class this morning in Acts chapter 5. You want proof God wants us to obey Him? Look at Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is bringing His Sermon on the Mount to a close. And in verse 21, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils. In thy name we did many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Listen to what Jesus said. Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them shall be likened unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. But everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, Jesus said, shall be like a foolish man that built his house upon the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. When the teachings of God are lost, we feel that God wants those teachings to be restored. Or said another way, God wants His people to start doing again what God told them to do in the first place. What He told them to do originally. There's a classic example of this over in Nehemiah chapter 8 over in the Old Testament. If you remember your Old Testament history, the entire world of the Israelites collapsed about 586 B.C. That was when Babylon captured and conquered Jerusalem. And those who survived were carried to Babylon. And they lived in Babylonian captivity for the next 70 years. In Nehemiah chapter 8, 
we find the end of that 70 years of captivity. Babylon was conquered by the Persians. And Babylon became a footnote in history. All this will be on the test. The people of God were then allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of God. It was an exciting time. And a spirit of revival was speaking, sweeping all over the land. And people were flocking to Jerusalem because they were hungry for the Word of God. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra is reading the law of Moses. And the people are hanging on his every word. Actually, if you go back and you read the book of Nehemiah, and you read that part of it, it says that Ezra read the law of Moses from morning until midday. And that's several hours that Ezra spent reading the Word of God. Imagine that. Sitting and listening to someone read God's Word for several hours. Folks get upset and fidgety if a sermon lasts more than 25 minutes. But I want you to take a look at verses 13 and 14 in Nehemiah chapter 8. On the second day, were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, and the priests and the Levites unto Ezra the scribe, to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. They discovered something there. They discovered that God had commanded them to live in temporary booths, or actually in huts made of tree branches during the festival that was known as the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, if you go down to verse 17, it says, And all the congregation of them that were come again out of captivity made booths, and sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua unto that day, the children of Israel had not done this. For almost ten centuries, since the days of Joshua, the children of Israel had not dwelt in these huts made of tree branches during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the reaction of those people in that far off day is hard for people in our sophisticated 21st century to comprehend. It's, as we would say, hard to wrap your head around it. Because apparently no one in that group in Israel that day said, well, that's just no big deal. We're observing the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what's really important. Apparently no one said, well, if this hut thing was that important, don't you think folks would have been doing it for the last thousand years? Nobody said, I mean, really, since nobody's been doing it, for the last thousand years, that ought to tell us there's no reason to sweat the details. Evidently, no one said, well, before we rush into this hut thing, let's ask ourselves if this is really a salvation issue. And no one apparently said, well, let's don't get all legalistic about this thing. In that far off day, 
when the people of Israel that had been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, when they saw what was going on, they were committed to obeying God. And they decided that they would get started building huts. I want you to read with me from Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'm going to read verses 15 through 17. And so it will be a little clearer and a little plainer. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in all Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all of the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun to that day. The people of Israel had not done so. Listen to it. And there was very great rejoicing. That, folks, is an example of restoration. Restoring God's commandments. There's another example from 2 Samuel when David is moving the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But I'm not going to go into that one this morning because I don't want to get everyone to get too fidgety because we're going too long this morning. Here's the point. The point is this. Restoration is important. That's what they did in that far off day when they came from Babylonian captivity. Attempting to restore God's original way of doing things is important. You see, we believe the Bible, the New Testament, contains a general pattern of beliefs and practices. Beliefs and practices that God expects every local church to follow. Having said that, don't take your New Testament and start looking through it for the place where all the details of that pattern are spelled out for us. Because there's no one particular place you're going to find in the index where they're all neatly laid out in order. The pattern is found in the overall teachings of the New Testament. And most of us believe the New Testament contains a general pattern for every local church to follow. And that's what we're committed to doing, following that pattern. What we want to do is be as close to the church of the first century as we possibly can. And we have a burning desire to follow and conform to that pattern. Our prayer is that those who want to follow Jesus would see the importance of conforming to the pattern. Over these next few weeks, there's so much we want to cover in this series of lessons. 
so much misinformation we want to try and shed light on. And the ultimate goal is for us to be able to persuade people to make Jesus Christ the Lord and the Master of their lives. And there's a pattern for that in the New Testament. Part of that comes from Acts chapter 2, where on Pentecost, Peter preached, and that great audience, they heard him preach. They said, when he finished his sermon, they said, well, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And they that gladly received his word were baptized, and 3,000 souls were added to them that day. Now, here's the thing. That's the pattern for making Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if there's changes that you need to make. I don't know if Jesus Christ is Lord and Master of your life. I don't know. There may be other things that you need us to help you with or pray with you about. But if there's some need in your life that we can be of assistance to you with, this is your opportunity to come and let us know about that as together we stand and while we sing.